0: You know, the whole idea that we can keep ourselves from being afraid is absolutely ridiculous. When somebody says to me, don't be afraid, I'm like, wait, now I'm afraid, because why shouldn't I be afraid? You know, you tell me why not to be afraid, and then I'll let you know whether I'm afraid or not. But it's it's something about when somebody says, don't be afraid, I automatically, my shackles go up, and I'm like, I'm afraid. (laughs) It just has the the opposite effect of me. I'm never quite sure about what I'm afraid of until it comes or threatens me. Have you ever noticed that fear hits us at unexpected moments? It's not like I'm always afraid, it's all of a sudden I'm afraid. I, you know, when I'm at night and you hear that weird noise and all of a sudden it's like, what was that? And then you're just on high alert. Will there be another noise? following that strange noise, because I'm on to you. Wherever you are in my house, I'm on to you. I heard that footstep. Now I'm waiting for the second step. And I'm a light sleeper. I remember my daughter Kelsey walking into my room one night to borrow something, actually probably to take something like tweezers or brushes or mascara or eyeliner, those things that they think we don't need because we're so natural. So they just take them like, you don't need these things. You, you shouldn't pluck your eyebrows anymore at all. I'll, I'll take this away from you. But she was coming into my room at night and I just was aware of a presence in my room and I just sat up in the bed and just screamed. I just started, ah! And I remember she's at the end of my bed going, stop it, stop it! And she's screaming too, it was so fun. But until she came into my room, I wasn't afraid. It was that sense that there's someone in my room that that all of a sudden I woke up and I was afraid, and then the heart starts pumping. And even though you're telling yourself, don't be afraid, there's no need to be afraid, the peril is over, you're like, somebody, will you please tell my heart to stop? Will somebody please tell, tell the rest of me and, and my adrenal glands that they can calm down and we can go to sleep? You know, once you get that, that scare, it's so hard just to go back to sleep. You know, my husband will sometimes go, that was nothing, go back to sleep. It's like, right. I, I'm sorry, I'm awake now. It's, I want to talk to you about the rest of our lives together. <laughs> I'll never forget, and this is just one of those things, um, when we lived in this little house in Huntington Beach, and the bedroom was really narrow, and we had a queen-size bed. And so we got those tables, and this is for those of you who are as old as I am, that were made out of particle board on the top, Remember, we would cover them with those cloths so nobody could see the particle board and had like three um, legs that you would screw in on the bottom. Well, we had those, but our room was so tiny that the lip came over onto each side of our bed. And we had our lamps on it. And I remember this uh, one night waking up and hearing this noise, and it was loud. And it sounded like somebody was breaking into our house. So Brian got up and he inspected the whole house, and he didn't see Anything. So I came to bed, and he said, I have no idea what that was. And we had, Kristen was a baby. Uh, she was about uh, two, and, and Char was a baby. And so the next night, I was, you know, uh, nursing Char, and Brian had fallen asleep. And I saw Brian's arm go out, just like, Phew, like this. And it hit the lamp and the table, and I realized, that's the noise I heard last night. But as fast as I realized that's the noise, he jumps up, goes like this, goes, I heard it, and goes running out of the room. <laughs> And I'm trying to tell him, it's you. But he's running down the hallway like, I'll get them. And then he's running the other way, I'll find them. just running by the door, (laughs) I didn't have a chance to tell him. And I I was laughing so hard. But I mean, we could not sleep for the rest of the night because the fear and then the laughter. And then I kept thinking of him jumping out, just, oh, my captain, my hero. But you never know quite what's gonna make you afraid. It's, it's suddenly you feel those fears, icy fingers tapping you on the shoulder. And the idea that we can simply get rid of our, our fears is so unrealistic. When somebody says, don't be afraid anymore, you're like, seriously, it's gone now, thank you so much. Because fear has this way of coming and making us feel beholden to it. You need me, I'm fear. You need me to be safe. Or fear pretends to be our protector, our benefactor. Honestly, sometimes I have to say, I'm afraid to not be afraid. I know that sounds crazy, but aren't you? I mean, you're like, wait, I'm not afraid. Why am I not afraid? I think I should be afraid. And should I fear that I'm not afraid? Because if I'm not afraid, then something will happen and I won't be aware. So maybe I should be afraid to not be afraid. Because we do that. We talk in these confusing riddles to ourselves. If you are waiting for fear to go away and for courage to replace fear, you're going to be waiting for a really, really, really long time. Elizabeth Elliot said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to do the thing we fear. See, we cannot wait for fear just to go away. We have to act in spite of our fears. We have to move through our fears David said in psalm fifty six three whenever i'm afraid, I will trust in you, even David was not exempt from fear, and we tend to think of David as fearless because he took down a bear and a lion and a giant. he took down armies and fought valiantly, and yet we realize that David had his times of fear, but the secret with David was whenever he was Afraid. He allowed fear to motivate him to trust in the Lord. Everyone feels afraid at times. When the devil roars, it's intimidating. The devil is a bully. He applies pressure and scare tactics. In fact, terrorism's goal is simply to incite fear so that no one feels secure. That's what terrorism is. It's not so much to destroy you as to make you feel like you will be destroyed, to get the cortisol going through your body so you're always on high alert. Fear in itself is not bad. In fact, fear can actually be healthy. And yet, don't we condemn ourselves over shame on you? You should, you're afraid and you know, where's your trust? And God's been so good. No, fear is amoral. It's neither bad nor good. It's how we handle fear. David said again, what time I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord. It's how we process our fear that can either make fear lethal or beneficial. Fear becomes lethal when we allow it to take control when we allow it to steer us direct how we're going to live our lives, or send us into a panic. I was reading a couple weeks ago about that crash in New York City with the train and the black Jeep. And it was a woman who was driving her black Jeep. And she had pulled up. And the bars that come down that block you from you know, the train tracks had come down. And her hood of her Jeep was a little bit under the um, bars. It was about a foot under the bars. And so she got out, and she inspected it, and she saw that her the you know nose of her car, the hood, had gone under. And she was afraid. What she didn't know was that those bars are created so that there's enough room, even with the longest hood, to go under and still leave um, a good six inches between your car and the train. But she didn't realize that. So she got back in the car. And the man behind her said that he saw her um, He saw her start to put her car in reverse to back up. And he had backed up so she could back up. But the train came right at that moment. And for some reason, in her panic, she put the car into drive, smashed through the barriers, and went right in front of the train. And the train, of course, drug her for 70 feet. And the car exploded. And I'm thinking, you know, panic, that's what panic does. It makes you make the wrong move under pressure. Have you ever panicked and done the wrong move? There was an article about three years ago in Reader's Digest. And the whole article was about how our instincts in panic will cause us to make the wrong moves. And it was one of those really uplifting articles that told you how people made all the wrong moves because they were panicking. So fear can be lethal when it takes control, makes us panic, Or it paralyzes us. Have you ever been paralyzed by fear? Like you literally could Thank you. You're not alone. You literally can't move because you're so afraid. And you're just stopping. You're you're afraid to try, to attempt. You're just paralyzed by fear. Years ago, I remember um, somebody in Vista, this is years ago. I was in my 30s, had the bright idea that we would go on top of our church, which was about... uh, two and a half, three stories high, and watch the fireworks. And that way we wouldn't have to pay, right, to go to Bringle Terrace Park and watch them. We could just go on the roof of the the church. Now, mind you, the roof of the church was huge. It was probably the size of the sanctuary. It's totally flat, and it had a lip on it like this. But we had to go up the fire escape, which is just this staircase on the side of the building. And I'm climbing up, but then there's like a gap between the, the... fire escape, and the lip that you have to climb over, I had people pulling me from the top and hoisting me from the bottom. Once I'm on the top, everybody is like walking back and forth. I don't know why. My legs would not work. They're walking, and I'm crawling. Like, aren't these fireworks nice? They're so nice. My kids are walking. That scared me even more that my kids were walking. Like, don't walk. Crawl like mommy. Here, see? (laughs) This will help develop our reading skills. Crawl. I, Brian's like, Cheryl, get up. I can't, Brian. I, I can't. I literally could not stand up. I could only crawl. I crawled over to people. I crawled to look at the fireworks. I crawled. You know, there's certain times when you're kind of embarrassed about your spouse. And Brian always cites that as one of those times he was embarrassed to be my husband. Then it's time to, to climb down and you have to go over this lip, and there's like a, it's a two foot, uh, you know, space between the lip and the staircase. Seriously, there were like five men helping me. Brian was not one of them. <laughs> to get onto the ladder, and then like, they're hanging like by one hand and going down like this on the side, helping me get down this ladder. Uh, on but it was literally my legs were shaking so badly. You know, I was afraid I was just going to go freefall. You know, because I didn't trust my own instincts. Fears can also cause us to hide. We hide. We don't go certain places because that person or that thing is there. So we hide, and we want to hide in our house or we want to hide out at places, and we don't want to be seen. Fear can cause us to hide. And so that's when fear is at a lethal stage, a dangerous stage. But fear can also be beneficial when we use it. Again, if you allow fear to, to move you to uh, try and take control or to fear to have control, to make you panic, to paralyze, to get you to hide, to, to get in the driver's seat, fear becomes very dangerous. But when we put fear in the passenger seat and we allow God to drive, fear can be beneficial. How so? Fear can slow us down, make us stop and, and go slower, and to apply caution. Fear can cause us to distrust ourselves and our own instincts and not just to you know, go um, into something without looking. And fear can help us to seek and trust the Lord. Again, David said, whenever I am afraid, I will trust the Lord. Satan wants to use fear to dismantle us, make us trust ourselves, make us look for earthly alliances, capitulate to his demands, to resign or give up, to go into hiding, or to make spiritual compromises. But God wants to use fear in our lives to teach us faith, to showcase his faithfulness, and to keep us humble and absolutely dependent on him. Hezekiah was a king who, when he was afraid, he trusted in God. He was not a fearless king. We learn that Ahaz, his father, had paid tribute to the king of Assyria. And he had asked Assyria to help him fight against Syria and Israel. Assyria had taken its time, had taken the money, the treasury of Israel, the treasury, I'm sorry, the treasury of Judah, the treasury of the temple, the treasury of the palace in Judah, but had not come to the aid of Ahaz against Israel or against Syria. But then later we learn that Assyria went and attacked Israel and took it, besieged it and captured it. And then what they did is they sent the citizens of Israel, the Jews, out of Israel and repopulated Israel with the other nations that they had captured. So they displaced the Israelites and put in people from other lands so that there was no pure um, Jewish culture any longer in Israel. And by this way, by dismantling or destroying these other cultures, the Assyrians um, felt like they were getting rid of any threats. Well, what happened about that time is Shalmaneser, who had been the commander who had taken down Israel, he died and he put his son Sargon, who is also known as Sennacherib, in charge of the forces of Assyria. Hezekiah at this time had become king and he took advantage of this change in leadership in Assyria to stop paying tribute to Assyria. Again, he had paid, his father had paid that tribute. They had done nothing for Israel. It was very, nothing for Judah, excuse me. And it had gotten very expensive. So then Sennacherib, the son of Shalmaneser, he comes to Judah with his forces and says, we're going to destroy you unless you pay us this tribute. The tribute money that they were requiring in today's market would be about 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. So they were saying, give us this amount and we will not attack Judah. So what happened is Hezekiah took and he stripped the temple doors down, got rid of the gold, took as much silver as he could, and he paid off Assyria, but it did not do any good because Assyria then began to destroy every fortified city in Judah. In other words, the Assyrians did not keep their word. Now, before this time, we know that Hezekiah, when he came um, into the, the throne of Judah began to do all these excellent spiritual reforms in Judah. He restored temple worship, he restored the Passover, he restored the the musical program, the worship at the temple. He also invited all of Israel, those who had been left in the land, to come and celebrate God and the Passover again in Jerusalem. And it was after this time, again, it's so many times after those spiritual commitments that we make in our lives, that the enemy comes and attacks. It's always after a retreat. You know, you get home and you you find out all those things that went wrong while you were gone. You know, it's always those times. I, we've all read the story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples have this incredible time with Jesus. They see him as he is glorified. His his garments become radiant. His face is radiant. He's speaking with Moses and Elijah. God speaks from a cloud and says, this is my son. Hear him. And when they come down from the mountain, there's that demon-possessed boy that nobody is able to cast the demons out, not the disciples, not anyone. And we see that this this demon is so powerful that it literally cripples this boy. It sends him into seizures. It throws him into fire, throws him into water, trying to destroy him. And it's waiting right at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration. And so often it is after these great spiritual experiences that the enemy comes to bully, to intimidate, saying, hey, don't enjoy Jesus too much because you do, and I'll be waiting for you. And that's exactly what the case was with Hezekiah. Sennacherib had defeated eight kingdoms before moving into the Judean area, and now he's at the fortified city of Lachish. He has taken Lachish down. Lachish was almost as strong as Jerusalem, a very fortified city in Judah. It's only 30 miles away from Jerusalem. And we're told that Sennacherib came with a great army. The Assyrians were known for their brutality in fighting. When they would take the captives, they would literally put a hook through the captive's upper lip, and they would lead them into captivity. So imagine being in Jerusalem at this time. It's the only standing city in Judah. Israel's already destroyed by the Assyrians. All the fortified cities in Judah, which would be the first defenses, have been taken down. And Rabshakeh comes, who is an emissary of Sennacherib, with a massive army simply to threaten and intimidate Jerusalem. Jerusalem is fortified only by these walls. And and the walls of Jerusalem are probably about three feet to four feet thick. They're probably about um, 16 feet tall. But what is that against an army that is fortified with battering rams and ready to build ramparts against the city? In fact, we're told that Reb Sheka stands at the highway to the Fuller's Field by the aqueduct, a place where it's like a, a, an area that he can shout to the people inside of Jerusalem, the people that stand on the gates. And he begins to shout out. And he's shouting so loud that Hezekiah sends three emissaries to deal with him. He sends Eliakim, who is over the palace, Shebna, who is the court secretary, and Joah, the court historian, just to take down what the enemy is saying and what his threats are. Ripshek's threats were meant to torment and cause panic. It's a full psychological or mental attack. I was reading years ago, don't ask me why, I think it was Reader's Digest. Sometimes when you're just bored, you read it cover to cover. And it was talking about Muhammad Ali's psychological attack against Joe Frazier. These are not things I'm interested in, but my husband used to be a Golden Gloves boxer, so I can I can entertain him with how much I know about boxing every once in a while. But I was reading where Muhammad Ali started this um, two-week ordeal of just uh, trying to weaken Joe Frazier's defenses and to get him afraid. And I... I read that he walked through the streets, and I believe this was in South Africa, with two tigers that were on a leash. And he would walk by Joe Frazier's hotel every day just showing, look how tough I am. I walk tigers. That's that's pretty tough. I like to walk poodles, but he... uh, But the whole thing was just this whole thing aimed at intimidation because fear can be weakening. Fear can weaken you. And so what you see is Rabshakeh begins, um, I think, a five-pronged assault against Judah, this five-pronged psychological or mental assault against Jerusalem. And the reason I'm gonna bring this up and I wanna show you this is you're going to see that the enemy does the same type a five-pronged mental assault against you. And the first assault was against the reliance of Judah. He begins to tell you or this enemy was telling the people of Jerusalem, these emissaries of Hezekiah, that they couldn't rely on their counsel. 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 20. In other words, Your strategy in war, your strategies are all wrong and they won't work. I think that's one of the first things that happens is we usually have plans. As women, we always have plans, don't we? We have plan A, we have plan B, we have plan C. In fact, sometimes we're up at night just making our plans. I I know I write myself schedules. I have plans for myself, especially like Thanks, the night before Thanksgiving, you know, what I'm going to do in the morning, what I've done, the casseroles that are in, the refrigerator covered in surround wrap. I, you know, I have these plans. And when those plans are shaken and I find that I can't rely on my own plans, or, you know, I can't rely on that recipe or that thing. And so the first thing is your plans aren't going to work. No other plans have worked and your plans won't work. Next, you can't rely on your own strength. This is what the enemy was saying. Every other force, stronger forces than you, have fallen to Sennacherib. And your strength is way too small and you cannot rely on your strength. Next, you can't rely on Egypt. You can't rely on your friends or your other alliances. He tells them that Egypt is too weak Egypt is too far away and Egypt is too unreliable. So the first assault often with fear, with the enemy is on our reliance. Your own plans aren't gonna work. Your own strategies, your own wisdom, you're too weak. Have you ever felt like, Lord, I'm not strong enough to take this. I just can't do it. I'm too weak. I I can't do another battle like this. And those that you're relying on are too weak, too unreliable to help you. And then the enemy says, you can't rely on the Lord. As he says to these people, you're relying on the Lord. Isn't it the Lord's high places that Hezekiah took away? In other words, what Rabshakeh was trying to do is make them feel insecure about the way they were serving the Lord. You can't rely on the Lord because you don't deserve the Lord's help. Haven't you heard that one in the assault against the enemy? You don't deserve the Lord's help. Have you been a perfect Christian? Have you read your Bible enough? Have you done this enough? Oh, no, 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 no. And how do you know that you're worshiping the Lord in the right way? Remember Satan's assault against Eve? Have God said, did God really say, are you actually worshiping the Lord the way he said? So you've got this first prong, which is you can't rely on yourself, but then you can't really rely on the Lord because you haven't been serving him right. I'm sorry, that was the second assault. The second assault then comes right now. You are so weak. You are so weak. The enemy will often tell you, you are so, so weak. You can't do this again. You're so tired. You don't have the strength. You won't persevere. You won't endure. You won't make it through this. I remember um, being pregnant with my third child. And all of a sudden thinking, oh, no, I remember my first labor, 28 hours. I remember my second labor, 10 hours. And looking at this, this beach ball I was wearing on the front of me, just going, no, not labor, not labor. I can't do labor again. It had been eight years, but I still, I, the thought of labor. I remember I was taking maternity workout class, which was hilarious because we look like those hippos in Fantasia. (laughs) And I said to the teacher, like, why are we doing this? Will this make a shorter labor? And she said, no. I said, no, it won't make a shorter, no. Will it make an easier labor? She said, no. But she smiled the whole time, which made me wonder if, you know, there was some evil intent there. And I said, then why are we doing it? She said, this will strengthen you to endure however long your labor is. I was like, oh, Great. So there we went, dancing like those hippos. But you know, the second assault is you are so weak. Verses 23 and 24. Rabshakeh says, If we gave you 2,000 horses and you could even put riders on it, which I don't even think you could muster 2,000 men to put on our horses, you still couldn't defeat us. He said, The weakest man in the Assyrian army was stronger than all the combined forces of Jerusalem. These were valiant, strong soldiers who had defeated, again, eight other kingdoms. And now here they are against Jerusalem. And he's saying, one of ours, one of our men could stand against all the men that you have inside the walls of Jerusalem. The third assault, which I consider one of the most deadly assaults, one of the deadliest fiery arrows of the enemy, Rabshakeh claimed that God told him to attack and destroy Judah. Have you ever heard the enemy say that to you? Oh, God wants me to destroy you. God wants me to take you down. That's what he's saying. God wants your destruction. I wouldn't be here unless God wanted to destroy you. What a lie. Jesus tells us in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes to rob, steal, and destroy But Jesus came that we might have life and that more abundantly. Peter tells us that it is not the will of our father that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and thus have eternal life. Our God is about life and not destruction. God would say in Ezekiel, why are you going this direction? That's to your destruction when I am promising you life. So anyone who comes and says, oh, it's the Lord's will that you're destroyed. Ah, they don't know their Bible. But this is intimidating and the enemy will come and say, oh, the Lord's on my side to destroy you. No. The fourth assault is that you're jeopardizing others by your trust in the Lord. It's all right for you to trust in the Lord. But what about these others that you're responsible for? What about your family? What about your children? I know that you're trusting in the Lord, but is that in their best interest? I was reading years ago about Lilius Trotter, who was a missionary in Tangiers, and they would lead all these Muslim women to Jesus Christ within a week, usually, of a conversion. That woman was killed by her family, either poisoned or outright murdered by her family for receiving Jesus Christ. Same thing that happened with any men who gave their lives to Jesus Christ in that culture. And Lilius went before the Lord and she said, Lord, is it right to lead people to you when I have shortened their lifespan, when I've jeopardized their lives? And the Lord spoke to her and said, Lilius, their lives were miserable. If you could see them now in glory with me, receiving such great rewards you would know that they're not sorry that they met me at all. Oh, the eternal picture. What a short-sighted view we have this side of heaven, but a greater view. But that's, that's one of the attacks of the enemy, but you're jeopardizing others. I mean, it's one thing for you, Cheryl, to believe in Jesus Christ, but when you tell these other women to believe in Jesus Christ, and they have to go out and live it, you know, of course God's there for you, but what about these women? the safest, greatest thing I can give you is Jesus Christ. Jesus will see you through everything. And yet that's an assault often that the enemy will say, well, it's one thing for you to believe, but what about others? The fifth assault are the false promises of the enemy. The enemy is always lying. How do you know when the enemy is lying? When his lips are moving. Jesus told us in John chapter 8 that the enemy, the devil, was a liar, that he's been a liar from the very beginning. Whenever he speaks, he's lying. So what does Rebsheka promise? He promises that, oh, if you, if you allow us to take over, you'll be able to stay in your own homes, eat from your own vine and fig, and drink from your own cisterns for, for a little longer little longer. Yeah, nothing's going to change if you give your life over to the enemy. In fact, you'll be safer if you give your life to the enemy. And then he tells them, yeah, the captivity will happen, but it'll be an improvement to the way you are living. When has captivity ever been an improvement? I think of those people who who do drugs who are told, oh, no, you you can just do this. Just, you could do do a little marijuana, you'll be fine. It won't change your lifestyle or anything. And then what happens? It's a gateway drug. It leads to other drugs. And soon you're under that captivity of the drug. And life does not improve under captivity. It never improves under captivity. These men did not answer a word because that had been Hezekiah's command. But they took the words of Reb to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was deeply moved. He was afraid by these things. He tore his clothes. He covered himself in sackcloth and he went to the house of the Lord. This is what he did with his fear. He mourned because of his fear. He realized that they were in a bad predicament and he went to the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim Shebna to Isaiah with this message. This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rebshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah refers to it, the Lord your God. Why? Because the condemnation was so strong. He was thinking, the Lord probably won't help me, but perhaps he'll help Isaiah. The Lord won't hear my prayer, but he'll hear the prayer of Isaiah. So he sins. Because often it was a prophet's ministry to also intercede for the nation. Hezekiah is afraid. But what we don't see in Hezekiah is panic. We see him going silent, not engaging with the enemy. This is so important to not engage with the enemy. Don't answer the enemy back. Um, A few weeks ago, I was under some warfare and the enemy was saying these things to me. You know how they come to your mind? And I started to answer, you know, the accusations back. No, I'm really a nice person. Have you ever done that to Satan? I'm really a nice person. You should leave me alone because I'm so nice. Like the enemy wants a nice person. Like the devil goes, Oh, you're nice. I'll skip you then. He's like, No, you're nice. <laughs> you know, he's gonna come on stronger against us. He he doesn't he doesn't care about how good you are. He doesn't care, he, he wants you to be bad. He doesn't care about how good you are, he doesn't care about any appeasements, he doesn't care about any compromises. The enemy comes to rob, steal, and destroy. There's no other cause for him to come. He doesn't come to make a deal. He doesn't come to improve your life. He only comes to rob, steal, and destroy. So when we're trying to make appeasements to the enemy, it doesn't work. When we're trying to talk to him, rationalize, um, converse, reason. Have you ever tried to reason with somebody who's unreasonable? I'll never forget being in Hawaii years ago. And this woman was witnessing to this unreasonable man on the street. And she turned to me and she said, I want to give him a Bible. Let me have your Bible. This is like my favorite Bible. I love this Bible. It had a light brown suede cover. It was so cool. I, and I said, no, not my Bible. Um, I love this Bible. My mom and dad gave me this Bible. I, I don't want to give it away. And she just, you know, kind of strong on me. Cheryl, I'm your elder. I want him to have this Bible. She gave him the Bible and he took the Bible and he tore it in half right in front of me. I was so mad. I was mad at her. I wanted to kick her. I was mad at him too. Honestly, I was a teenager. I wasn't strong in the Lord like I am now. Love, love. I was so mad. I was so mad. You know, that man was so unreasonable. He was so irrational. I could tell tell it wasn't going to work. Jesus said, do not, do not give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before swine. You know, what you've got from Jesus Christ is holy. And you've got these pearls that God has given you, certain promises that are so precious to you. And you know what? The enemy's not interested. He does not value them. He does not hold them in esteem. So trying to argue, trying to reason, trying to um, bring any clarity into an argument with the enemy is absolutely of no value. In fact, it's counterproductive. It's going to have the opposite effect that you think it will have. What works to go quiet? Don't engage with the enemy. What did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. On more than one occasion, get thee behind me, Satan. Just, I'm not engaging with you. I'm not talking to you. And I loved how even when Jesus was in the wilderness with the enemy, all his answers were short. Very short, and it was the scripture. He did not engage with the enemy. He didn't say, Well, how are you doing, Satan? Or why did you ask a question like that? Or what's, what's your motivation in asking these things or promising these things? Don't ask those things. Don't engage with the enemy. Don't talk to him. Keep silent. Let the Lord do the talking. You know, speak to the Lord, not to me. Take it to the Lord. Satan is not interested in your innocence, your kindness, or even your goodness. He wants your condemnation and your destruction. When they did speak to Rabshakeh, telling him, don't speak in Hebrew, speak in Aramaic, it only encouraged Rabshakeh to yell even more and to try to engage more people and intimidate more people. Hezekiah did recognize the dangerous nature of the enemy's threat, so he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, but he went to the house of the Lord, and he asked the godly prophet to pray for him and the nation. Hezekiah's response to fear resulted in God's intervention and God's answering Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, 2 Chronicles 19, 6 through 7. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own hand. In other words, God's saying these are just mere words, but I'm God. Those are words. Those are intimidations. Those are meant to make you afraid, but they're just words. They're just vapor. They're going to pass, but I'm going to take a spirit and I'm going to put it on the enemy and I'm going to lead him away. Just as he meant to lead you away, I'm going to lead him away. Right after receiving this word, Rabshaka finds out that the king of Syria has moved from Lakesh and he is pushing forward in his contra- conquest of Judah and he's now attacking the city of Libna. But as the forces of Sennacherib and Assyria are in Libna, They hear a rumor that the king of Ethiopia has attacked, and they're drawn away, and there's a short reprieve from the threats. But it's only temporary, because the king of Assyria sends a message to Hezekiah, and the gist of the message is, don't think this is over. Don't be deceived by your God. No one has been able to stand against me. You know, after the enemy threatened Jesus and offered him, all those temptations in the wilderness, we read in Luke chapter four that he left them until a more opportune time. And that's what we see, it's a reprieve, but it's not over. The enemy is saying, I will be back. And again, Hezekiah is afraid. He takes the threatening note to the house of the Lord, he places it before the Lord and he prays. And in his prayer, the first thing he does is he acknowledges the greatness of the Lord. This is so important. When we're afraid, acknowledge the greatness of the Lord. Acknowledge how he's greater, not only than your fears, but he's greater than the situation. He's the God of Israel. These are his people. You belong to the Lord. He's the one who dwells between the cherubim, the greatness of his host. He is God alone, and there are no other gods, no other powers. He is the creator of heaven and earth then hezekiah brings the situation to the lord and he asks the lord to take note of all that sennacherib has threatened and said and then he brings out the reality of the situation see faith is not a blind eye to all that the enemy is doing faith looks squarely at all that the enemy has done and says but god is still greater god is still greater You know, often there are people like, oh, no, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. No, sometimes what we need to do is say, it's really bad. This is how bad it is. And then hand that to the Lord. This is the situation, and that's what Hezekiah does. He deals with the reality of the situation. The Assyrians have been victorious. Other nations have fallen. There were eight other kingdoms that had been put down. The other gods of those nations were defeated, but that's because they really weren't gone. They're the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and they've been thrown into the fire. And then give this to the Lord as an opportunity for God to come and get himself glory. Remember when Lazarus died and Jesus said, we're going to go to Bethany? And the disciples said, you know, that's a really dangerous place for you to go. Why are we going there? And Jesus said, because Lazarus is sick. And they're like, well, let him sleep and he'll get better. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And it's good for your sakes that I was not there, that you might see the glory of God. give this situation to God as an opportunity for him to get glory. It's one of the things my friend Nancy Sylvester does with whatever comes into her life. She always says, Lord, come and get yourself glory. Whether it's um, a financial deficit in her home, in the church, she had adrenal breakdown, whatever it is, she presents it to the Lord. Lord, come and get yourself glory. And the Lord does. I know I've told you this story before, but I love it. She was driving. She's a wild driver. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm terrified to drive with her. Um, and she was driving this one day, and she got she got pulled over. This is in England. And her, her three children were younger. They were sitting in the back. And here comes the policeman up to the side of the car. And all of a sudden, she hears the three children almost in unison saying, Oh, Lord, come and get yourself Glory. Interestingly enough, she looked at me and she goes, and I didn't get a ticket. (laughs) The Lord is able to come and get himself glory. So he says, now therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Again, the Lord answers through Isaiah and he answers each one of the enemy's assaults. I'm gonna go through this quickly because I still have... 30 pages to go through today with you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There's like two, but I want to get through it. Because I want to get to the the I want to get to the main point cuz none of this has been the main point, but the main point is almost here. <laughs> so, he deals with the first assault. The first assault, remember you're you're so all your reliance is wrong. The first assault is God says this is the virgin daughter She's pure before God, so she has the right to rely on me. I'm her father. I'm standing behind her, and she is shaking her head behind your back because I'm with her. This, I'm her reliance, and her reliance on me is stronger than any force you have. The next, that they were too weak, God says to them, you're not dealing with men, but with me. You've lifted up your voice against me. You've reproached the Lord. And what God is saying, you're the weak ones because you're gonna take on me. And compared to me, you are so weak. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass. Second Chronicles 19, 25 through 26. Third assault. They tried to say that God was not with Judah. But God is promising that he is with Judah and promising to fight for Judah. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. Second Chronicles nineteen twenty Fourth assault that the people would be jeopardized by trusting in God. But God promised to take care of the people. In chapter 19, verse 29, God says that the people would be fed for the next two years and then they would be able to sow and plant again. The fifth assault, the enemy had said, uh, the false promises will take you, everything will be better. But God says, you're not going anywhere. I'm going to hold you here. You will not be moved. You're going to eat the produce of the land. You're going to sow crops the third year, and they're going to spring up, and you will harvest them. He is going to sustain them. They would not be moved. God kept his word. We're told that God sent one angel. I love this. One angel into the camp of Assyria, and 185,000 valiant men were killed. We're told later that when Sennacherib returned to his own country, shame-faced, don't you love it? He returned shame-faced. I'd like to see it. It reminds me of that Guilty Dog YouTube video. What does shame look on? Sennacherib. He was, it's really good on YouTube. But he was killed in his own country where he should have been the safest in his own country. He was killed in the temple of his god that God did not protect him that God did nothing for him and he was killed by his own family he was the most vulnerable in the place he felt the safest Hezekiah was afraid again when he was about to die in 2nd Kings 20 verse 1 we're told that he was about to die and Isaiah went to him and told him to get his house in order because he was about to die Hezekiah turned his face to the Lord and prayed, Remember how I walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And he wept bitterly. We're told that God met Hezekiah because of his fear. He prayed and God met him and extended the life of Hezekiah by 15 years. What I want to say, here it is, main point, everybody, here it is, Hezekiah was safer when he was afraid than when he wasn't afraid. Sometimes we are safer when we are afraid than when we're not afraid. And that was what was happening with Hezekiah. We had this woman. I won't tell you where. But we knew this woman, and she came to me because she was so riddled with fears. But in her fearful state, she was at the church all the time. She was praying. She was reading her Bible. She went to a psychologist. They put her, or a psychiatrist, whichever one, put her on Prozac. She lost every single inhibition. She ended up being unfaithful to her husband. She ended up just going off the rails because she lost that fear. And I believe God had sent that fear to protect her from herself. And when she was afraid, she was safe and she was beneficial to the people of God. But when she lost that fear and had no fear, She became a detriment to her family, to her marriage, and even, yes, to the church. Hezekiah, when he was not afraid, maybe he wasn't afraid because, hey, God dealt with the Assyrians. He had overcome death. We find out that he did not repay the Lord according to the favor shown him. And because he was not afraid... Not afraid of death, not afraid of any enemies. Wrath was looming over Jerusalem because he was not thankful. He was not seeking the Lord as he had before. And we're told that he humbled himself. And when he humbled himself, the danger was averted. But then when the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, and they they came because the amazing defeat of the Assyrians, because the Assyrians had been a threat to Babylon, and in Second Chronicles thirty 31, uh, we're told that they came to see, to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. Like, how did you defeat 185,000 of the most valiant soldiers? And Hezekiah was not afraid. And so he showed them the kingdom of Judah. And he showed them the treasuries of Judah because by this time, the other kingdoms were so thankful that the threat of Assyria was gone that they had replenished the treasury of Judah. But what happened, Hezekiah showed them everything. And the threat now to Judah and the destruction of Judah was more real than it had ever, ever been. You see, God wants to use our fear to make us more dependent on Him. And we are safer when we are afraid and turning to Him than when we are trusting in our own strength or even in the past victories of the Lord than when we are trusting in Him and Him alone. We cannot do away with fear, nor should we, but we should use fear as an ally. We should refuse to panic to answer fear back. But we should use fear to cause us to seek the Lord and to put our trust entirely in the Lord. Self-confidence will leave us alone and leave us with only our own resources. But fear used in the right way Will make us get such a grip on Jesus. Will make us get such a hold on Jesus and say, I won't let go. When I was a little girl, my parents had put a plaque, and I told you this before, Isaiah 41, 13, for I the Lord thy God will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help you. And I remember being a little girl and being afraid. And what I would do is every time I was afraid, I would just reach out my hand and I would just get a hold in my heart and mind of the hand of Jesus. And something interesting to me that I realized later is I'm right-handed. So if the Lord's holding my right hand, I'm pretty defenseless because he's got my right hand, which means he has to be all my defense. Because when he's holding my right hand with his left hand, his right hand, and we're told that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly his right hand is free to move and to defend me and be everything that I need. Psalm forty-one. I, I mean, Isaiah forty-one is a is a is a place that I just rest and I go back to again and again. Interestingly enough, years later, I had never told Brian that Isaiah forty-one thirteen was my promise, my scripture, and so he tried to take Isaiah forty-one as his own because God met Brian one night when he was struggling with a threat to Calvary Chapel Vista with all sorts of incoming trials. The Lord opened Isaiah 41 to him and said, this is for you. I have made you my sharp threshing sledge, and you will will pound down the nation's God spoke to him in Isaiah 41 God spoke to me through Isaiah 41 and I think wow that is so cool cuz we're married and it works out really good that we're both in Isaiah 41 you know fear fear can can throw us off our mark but when we take that fear and we seek the Lord, we seek his promises, we seek his fellowship, we seek to grab onto his right hand and not let go, then fear becomes an ally against the destructive forces of the enemy, and God will work and do something greater than our expectations, and he alone will get the glory. You couldn't say that it was the forces of Hezekiah that beat back the Assyrians, because it wasn't. It was one angel who slew 185,000 valiant men. To God be the glory, God alone, but he will get the victory if, what time I am afraid, I will trust the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, in those times of fear, Lord, we don't have to feel condemned. We don't have to feel helpless. We don't have to compromise. We don't have to panic. But we do. We do need to get a hold of your right hand. And we do need to seek you. And we do need to pray before you and spread out the enemy's threats before you and allow you to work and be God and come and get yourself glory. Lord, I pray that, you would use our fears, Lord, for greater glory to your name, that you would take our fears and you would use our fears as a catalyst to trust in you to a greater degree than we've ever trusted before, that you would use our fears to lay a foundation of faith that we would continually resort to your greatness, your goodness, your power, your love for us, and your ability to beat the mountains into plains. So Lord, we present before you our fears, and we say, Lord, take these and use these fears for the greatest glory in Jesus' name. Amen.